Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. EcoStore has always been committed to making products that are safer for people and the world. They began searching for packaging that is safer for our planet and found one. It's plastic made from sugarcane. Because sugarcane captures carbon as it grows, sugar plastic bottles help reduce your carbon footprint. And just like regular plastic, it's 100% recyclable. To find out more about the packing used for EcoStore's home and body care products, visit ecostore.com.au. Hey there, Dumbo Feather friends. I'm Nathan, chatting with you on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. I'm back in our St Kilda offices, which is a treat. Speaking of treats, we've got Roman Krasnarik on the podcast today. He's an internationally renowned public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. Born in Sydney, Roman now lives in Oxford with his kids and wife, Kate Rayworth, who many of you will know as the designer and thinker behind Donut Economics. Roman is the founder of the world's first empathy museum and he's a research fellow of the Long Now Foundation a long-term cultural institution promoting slower, better thinking. Roma's most recent book is The Good Ancestor, which calmly calls for a reorientation towards the future, inviting us to consider the legacy we leave for the benefit of our far-off descendants. He spoke with our contributor, Sarah Darmody, in September 2020. About a year and a half ago, I happened to be in San Francisco and my husband was studying at Harvard and they took them around on this whirlwind tour of all the places that you have to go and the companies that you have to see in Silicon Valley. He came back to me with very shining eyes one day and said, we went to the most incredible place. It's the home of the long now. It's like, what is the long now? And, you know, I was jet lagged and postpartum with a tiny baby and we still stayed up late talking about his newly discovered notion of being a good ancestor and what that might mean. And so this was very new to me kind of 18 months ago. But then I've seen the idea come up several times since, just sort of here and there. Most recently for me in some work I was doing in the States, I came across a writer and a thinker called Leila Saad who wrote a book called Me and White Supremacy. And she does all this work on anti-racism and being a good ancestor in that context. So I just wondered for you, you've been working on it for sort of three or four years, but I feel like this idea, this notion of being a good ancestor, you talk about it beginning with Jonah Salk. That is a long time ago now that he's coined something really awesome and worth hanging on to, yet it seems to have not found its place until quite recently. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually. The first inkling of that concept I ever came across was in a speech that Salk gave in 1977. But then you're right that the phrase of good ancestor, you know, he said, you know, are we being good ancestors? That's the great question of our time. 
And then it did sort of seem to go quiet for a while. When I came across it myself through the Long Now Foundation, like you and your husband, I started looking around and I saw quite a few people were talking about the good ancestor and various ways, but it hadn't really taken off as a concept for lots of different reasons. I think partly the time since Salk said that in 1977 has been the time of neoliberal hyper-individualism. Yeah. It's the opposite of being a good ancestor. I mean, neoliberal economic thought has no sense of time, no sense of long term. It's about now. It's about deregulating the markets now, making the quick money now. It's about the now now, not the long now. <laughs> exactly. Or what Brian Eno called the short now, as opposed <laughs> to the long now. Um, so I think that's probably the fundamental reason why that concept has taken time to grab hold. And then what's happened in the meantime, three really important developments, I think. One is the rise of climate science, which has extended our sense of time. Hmm. So now we open a newspaper and there we see reports about how there's going to be carbon stain in the atmosphere for 200 years or a projection from the governmental panel on climate change about rising sea levels for a century, even five centuries from today. So I think that's one thing that's extended our time horizons. Hmm. The second thing has been the rise of new technologies particularly AI, threat of genetically engineered pandemics, um, automation to a certain extent. These things are making us think about our longer-term impacts. Who are we going to even be as humans? You know, yeah. The rise of artificially enhanced humans, cyborgs, all this kind of stuff. So I think that's making us think longer now. And then the third thing I think is more recent, and this connects with Leila Saad, which is a recognition that so many of the inequalities, prejudices, racism of our contemporary societies have very deep roots, rooted in long histories of slavery era, uh, prejudice and colonial era, racism. And these will stay embedded in our public institutions and culture, criminal justice systems, unless we act. Unless yep. They are deeply embedded in problems of intergenerational justice. And that's why Leila Saar, on the first page of her book, says, you know, this is about being a good ancestor. Yeah. Curiously enough, I don't know about Australia, but in the US, the subtitle of her book has the word good ancestor in it. But in the UK, they've taken it out. But the text is exactly the same. Oh, that's fascinating. So I think those different forces are bringing the long now to the fore. And then they get manifested. You get someone like Greta Thunberg saying, we can only tackle the climate crisis with cathedral thinking. It's very similar to the idea of being a good ancestor, mm. thinking about what our legacies are going to be. So I really think this is a major shift in human thought. Yeah, well, look, I really hope you're right. I hope the notion of being a good ancestor is it becomes the sort of operating paradigm of the next 50, 60 years. That's as far as I'm willing to forecast at the moment. That's my short, long now. That's far enough. Yeah. But I think in the opening of your book, which is, you know, you've penned the opening in March 2020 and you've written, geez, this coronavirus looks like it might have something to say about time. And lo, <laughs> here we are many months later and time has become incredibly elastic for people, I think, and their instant gratification systems have been sorely disrupted and we've been pushed around and pushed back into different modes of time and ways of being. It's sort of slowed people down in a way that has been uncomfortable for a lot of people and a lot of institutions. 
because of something that is in our face affecting us all. And I guess that's the difference between something like climate change that doesn't feel like a clear and present danger to a great many people. If it felt like they might catch it on the tram, then I'm pretty sure they would stay home. (laughs) They would want action. And I guess it's my hope that having something like coronavirus experienced by people all over the world, it's such a unifier. There is nowhere free of it right now. This sense that we all have something similar that we need to mobilize against. If we could keep that going, if we could keep that going to some of the more existential threats like climate change, They either don't believe it or they won't be around for it. And that kind of thinking is something that can only be tackled really with the idea of being a good ancestor, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have the hope that when you have a shared threat, we might all learn something from it, as you're saying, with coronavirus. Certainly that's the case with the Second World War. You know, there's the sense of a shared threat in Britain, you know, where I live, that the Nazis might invade and drop their bombs everywhere, led to extraordinary changes like evacuation of a million children countryside, which had all sorts of social consequences like the rise of height and welfare provision for children, because suddenly people in rural areas saw that the urban poor, these poor kids, had lice and rickets and Mm. malnourished and so on. But of course, the problem with these shared experiences and also moments of crisis is that they can take us in very different directions. There's a very interesting sci-fi novel called The Three-Body Problem, and that tells the story of a world, planet Earth, where scientists find out that aliens are coming to Earth, but it's going to be about 450 years before they arrive. And actually what happens is that humankind does not just sort of suddenly unite. They actually split. Some people want to fight the aliens. Some people turn it into a religion. Others don't give a shit. And if I just shift to something else, something a bit like this, there's this research about near-death experiences. People who've had near-death experiences, they've almost been killed in a car crash or they've almost died from cancer and they've recovered. They have very different reactions. About a third of people, it transforms their life. They want to sort of carpe diem, seize the day. They change their jobs. They travel with their kids around the world. About another third of the people have a traumatic response. They become depressed, anxious, and so on. And for about a third of people, there's no change at all. They just kind of get on with life. And I think we will see that with coronavirus too. We're going to see some countries or cities being kick-started into very progressive change, like the city of Amsterdam adopted my partner, Kate Rayworth's donut as a sort of model for its post-COVID, post-growth recovery. That's fantastic because I'm a big fan. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. So there'll be some cities doing that. Other places will be just going on to business as usual. So I don't know how it's all going to play out. You know, it makes me think a bit of the way the fires in Australia played out. I'm from Sydney and my dad had a fire a half a kilometer from his house and I had to scream at him down the phone to please leave. In fact, in the end, I had to get my kids to say to him, Grandpa, you have to leave because he didn't want to leave the house. Mm. Maybe for a lot of Australians, that whole period of bushfires is almost forgotten or maybe it didn't have any deep effect. But some it did, some it didn't. And I think coronavirus may be a little bit like that. Because the irony with my dad was that, you know, back in December, I was saying to him, Dad, you must leave the house. And then coronavirus comes along and says, Dad, don't leave the house. <laughs> That's the kind of world we're in. It's a kind of these incredible tensions. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And if you believe that we live in an increasingly fragile ecosystem and one that has enormous pressure and that we will start to see climate events like we did in January that threaten 
livelihoods, ways of life, national identity, then we might start to get a sort of a crisis response that is genuinely unifying or sticks around a little bit longer instead of just ricocheting from one disaster response to another. I'm fascinated. I'll just go back a bit to when you were talking about Leila Saad and this idea of the being a good ancestor and that a lot of the social problems that we have are inherited. They're inherited from in the spectrum of time very recently. These are sort of recent problems. If we look at the last 500 years is where we get a lot of the deep social issues that we're dealing with today or say 150 years ago when we get into the problems that arise from industrialization and these sorts of issues. And I noticed at one of your early examples, you talked about the QWERTY keyboard and how that was invented to keep the most popular keys away from each other so as not to cause issues with, you know, overuse and overcrowding on a keyboard. It's not a good system. And yet that's 1850 something that the QWERTY keyboard is invented. And here we are still using it and we can't let go of this foolishness simply because, oh, that's the way it's always been. And I'd love to see a long list of things like the QWERTY keyboard where we just sit down and go, is this still something we need? Racism, still something we need? Quoting keyboards, still something we need? How is any of this serving us? Another example that you brought up that gave me a fair amount of hope was the different cities and communities who are using citizen assemblies drawn out of a hat like a jury to think about some of the problems and issues facing them and what that does to problem solving for communities. I found that very heartening. What do you think about that approach? There's lots of interesting things you're just talking about there. I mean, the whole QWERTY keyboard thing is really powerful. And I think you're right. It wouldn't be great. It's like a royal commission into the obsolete institutions, practices, technologies, which we're still holding on to, as you said. Racism. Do we still need this? You know, these colonial era kind of attitudes. Of course, when you start doing that, the tricky thing is it's a bit of a can of worms. If you think, as I do, that representative democracy, the dominant political system, certainly in Western countries, if you think that is defunct, like I do, because it gives no rights or voice or representation to future generations, and it's caught in short-term electoral cycles and politicians get caught up in corporate funding and all that kind of stuff, well, then if you start questioning that, you have to start questioning a lot of things. If you start questioning consumer capitalism, then you have to start thinking of serious system change, which is what small giants and you know, all your work, all of that stuff is all about. Certainly when it comes to politics, I've got great faith in the citizen assembly model as one of the ways we can revive democracy. You know, I used to be a political scientist, particularly in the 1990s, and, and I was apparently an expert on democratic governance. You know, I used to teach it in universities, wrote a PhD about it. And during that time, it never once occurred to me that we do disenfranchise future generations in the same way that women and slaves have been systematically disenfranchised in the past. And yet that is the reality. And we need to think, how do we reinvent democracy for this era where we need to be good ancestors? And equally, we've seen the rise of far-right populism. Mm. Australia, Hungary, US, you know, there's a declining faith in traditional political institutions and political parties and electoral systems. So what are we going to do? And I think citizen assemblies, going back to an ancient Greek idea, really, participatory democracy, though, of course, the Greeks was all just sort of men who weren't slaves yeah. and weren't immigrants, had the influence. We want to widen it out a bit now. The citizen assembly model, I think, is an important way to rethink what democracy looked like in two ways. One, through making people have more stake in it by being participants. 
And so you see, for example, in Ireland, they had a citizen assembly, which, whose job was to look at several issues, including climate change, but particularly abortion. And it led to the great recent referendum on abortion, a massive constitutional change. Which politically would not have been possible, I don't think. In their traditional political system, who would be able to accomplish that? Yeah, I mean, at the same time, one has to acknowledge that there were social movements working on those issues for many decades. So it wasn't just the citizen assembly. There still needs to be a lot of grassroots organising and consciousness raising along with it. Citizen Assembly is very fundamental in Spain and Belgium. They use the municipal government. And so I think there's a lot to be done there. So it's partly it gets people involved. But the other thing that which is really amazing about Citizen Assemblies is that the evidence tends to show that they are better at long-term thinking than your regular politicians. Yeah, reading that in your book got me thinking about, and I don't know if this is the case in many other places in the world, but I certainly have the feeling in Australia that a local council is the sort of model of government that seems most responsive and most invested in the constituents that it serves. And I'm not sure if that's because it is so immediate and practical and we're right there we've got a lot more in common with each other in a smaller community and it seems like people can make bolder plans, hold each other to account and dream more, set targets and be more hopeful. And it's something that I noticed. I was living in America. We came home because of coronavirus and I got to watch the governors of each state take back some control and authority because the US, I guess, is so large and splintered. In terms of caring for a group of people or making a bold plan and getting everyone to stick together, it seems like going local is really a place where that dreaming and hope not optimism can be accomplished more readily. Do you think that? Yeah, I do think that. The US is a really interesting example. For example, after Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, 279 US mayors, they were going to stick with the Paris Agreement, stay below 1.5, one in five Americans. Big cities, Miami, Boston. Mm. That's extraordinary. And it shows, I think, a global shift that's going on towards devolution, that devolution is becoming destiny, and nation states are gradually losing power. Cities and towns, they are more responsive as a rule of thumb. Of course, cities can have their corrupt mayors and, yeah. and be captured by businesses and so on. But I think in general, they're close to people. They're good at dealing with practical problems, getting water into people's houses, mm. dealing with housing prices and inequalities and migration and so on. And they're able to push out, just thinking about Amazon in New York recently. The- right, pushing them out. Yeah. People care about their local areas, the streets they walk in, the parks their kids play in. But I think so much more could be done at the local level. I mean, I'm really inspired by this Japanese model called future design, which I talk about in the book, which is a form of town and city decision making, which is expanding across Japan. And what they do is they invite people from local residents, a bit like a citizen's jury, citizen's assembly, but they split them into two groups. And one group are told they're citizens from the present. And the second group are told they're citizens from the year 2060. And they're given these ceremonial robes to wear to aid their imaginative journey. It turns out that the citizens from 2060 systematically come up with more radical plans in areas of healthcare and environment and transport and so on. And so there are towns in Japan who've now adopted this future design methodology. And there's some really incredible results. For example, I was in a meeting not long ago with a prospective mayoral candidate for London. An election for the mayor of London was coming up. And this person was saying, oh, look, people don't want to pay for climate change. They don't want to pay higher taxes. Well, in Japan, where they did this future design, one of their studies was showing that if you ask the people of the present whether they want to pay higher water rates to improve the water system, 
people didn't want to pay. But when you ask the group who are imagining themselves in 2060, they were willing to pay higher water rates to improve the long-term water infrastructure. Now, it's a very basic nuts and bolts thing, the plumbing that makes the city work. But those people recognize that they want their children, their grandchildren to have water. People will pay. People will invest when they feel connected. And this is the trick to it all. Mm. How do you get people to make that empathic leap to the future? And a lot of my previous books, including one I wrote about empathy and the Empathy Museum, which I found, which has gone to Australia a couple of times, actually, is mostly about how do we step into the shoes of people in today's world? One of our exhibits, A Mile in My Shoes, you could go inside and you put on a pair of someone's shoes, ex-prisoner or a Syrian refugee, and listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their life. But how do you listen to the audio narrative of someone from the year 2060? How do you step into their shoes? There's a lot of, let's say, imaginative work. I noted one of your examples, which was from the UAE and having decision makers in the United Arab Emirates breathe the air in 30 or 40 years time if the current pace of air pollution increased and having them actually breathe that air so that they could understand what their children would be breathing and the effect that that had. I love those sorts of experiments. I think, you know, humans, we do have big imaginations. We're imaginative creatures, but we can be incredibly self-centered and very concerned with our own immediate needs. And certainly something that you touched on in Western culture anyway, when we think about being a good ancestor, we tend to think about like our immediate children and maybe our grandchildren. You sort of outlined keeping resources You might be able to help them with education or housing in an increasingly insecure world. You know, what kind of jobs might they have? What kind of housing market might they go into? These are sort of Western middle class concerns. And the idea that these things are scarce or under threat makes us want to gather those things together and protect our own kids first. And then if you go beyond that and you're living a difficult life where it's paycheck to paycheck or not even paycheck, then how do you start thinking? How do you start considering others who haven't even been born yet? How do you consider your great, great grandchildren if you're feeling overextended just in the average day? I feel like a lot of us feel stressed and overextended in the average day because we had some pretty poor ancestors who didn't think this stuff through and just gave us a lot of crappy, neoliberal, late market capitalism disasters. These positions have not been fully thought through. And that's why we suffer, I think, in so many of the ways that we do that make us unable to be philanthropic with our ideas and really feel like we have enough to give to people who haven't even been born yet. What I find really fascinating about this issue uh, is this, that at first sight, it seems that being a good ancestor, thinking about the future generations beyond our own kin, all those future holders, might be a privileged act. You know, that if you are dealing with stuff of the immediate presence, like the world's 220 million refugees and migrants, which will be projected to go up to 400 million by 2050, of course, you're just trying to put food on the table, just trying to deal with the now. Like when my dad came as a refugee to Australia in the early 1950s from Poland, He was just trying to live. I mean, there was a housing crisis. There was racism. It was tough. So who are we to ask people to think long term? But here's what I think is really amazing. Often, it seems to me that it's exactly those people who are on the social margins in positions of powerlessness who are actually much more engaged in long term thinking than some of those who are really better off. So you've got the idea of the aristocrat who's worried about just the legacy of Mm. passing on their own manorial house or their property to their kids, not caring about anybody else. 
And then you've got people like Leila Saad talking about intergenerational injustices yeah. and being a good ancestor. Black Lives Matter, I think, was infused with a sense of time. I sat on the streets of Oxford, where I live, protesting to bring down a statue of Cecil Rhodes. That's a recognition of a history going back 100 years, 200 years of slavery, apartheid, and so on. And a recognition if we don't do something now, we are burdening generations to come. Yeah. Um, Equally, you find Native American peoples, for example, some Iroquois peoples, Lakota Nation, they're the ones who are talking about seventh-generation thinking, looking forward 150, 200 years. They're the ones that are carrying a culture of ecological stewardship for the long term, more than people who are much better off, you know, at least materially better off. Or in Maori culture, there's the concept of papa-papa, the idea of lineage, that we're all connected in a long chain of existence going far into the past and long into the future. The light happens to be shining in the here and now, so how are we going to shine the light more widely? I think there's an interesting kind of twist to it there. We've got an enormous amount to learn, often from people who are struggling with the here and now, but recognize that if they're going to create a better world for their children, but their own communities, a wider world, that we need to be thinking longer term. I think there's a lot we can draw on there. Yeah, and we need to be dreaming as well. We need to be ambitious in our planning. And I think something that I found startling reading your book was your description of the turgid lecture given in 1730-something by a pair of geologists about, in fact, how old the planet might be, answer being very, very, very unfathomably old. And up until that point, someone in Cambridge has used the Bible to date the Earth at no more than sort of 6,000 years in a day or something. And that massive shift in thinking of the earth as being something so unfathomably ancient, something so old, and our place in it being so small, the idea in Western Judeo-Christian culture that that idea is so recent, I found very startling. It wasn't something I'd actually considered front of mind before the first peoples of this country, of Australia, understanding perfectly, beautifully, and building their culture around this sense of timelessness and springing from the earth so long ago that it can't possibly be imagined and that there will be a continuum of time that is also circular and being dreamed into being. It feels like we have an enormous amount of catching up to do. And to be able to reframe it, having read your book, as sort of a brutal ignorance of the amount of time that we've been around and had our ideas affecting the planet, being ignorant of our place in time, and then the amount of damage that we've managed to do in a very short space of time, that's a real pickle to start to untangle in a hurry. But we're going to have to. <laughs> I mean, I've always looked at those geological tables with all the Cretaceous and Jurassic periods and so on. It's never done anything for me, really. But when I discovered that it is, as you say, only in the last couple hundred years that the Western cultures discover the age of the Earth, more than 6,000 years old, our concept of time comes out of an invented world, an invented short-termism, which has nothing to do with the ecological choreography of the planet, which we have lost touch with and which, of course, so many indigenous peoples have stayed in touch with. For us, it's the electoral cycle, not the carbon cycle. We're more worried about the tax year and the lunar calendar and all this kind of thing. And so we need to find ways to get back in touch. And certainly I find the idea that we have wrought such damage in such a short period of time, I find that very motivating. Because I think it is hard to get your head around deep time, something going so far back 
billions of years, billions of years into the future, but to recognize that in an unbelievably minute hairbreadth of a time, we have jeopardized the living world with our ecological blindness and deadly technologies. Who the hell are we to do this? I mean, what mm. arrogance is that? I find it sort of extraordinary. The problem with deep time, of course, a bit like the first question we spoke about, is that the idea of the Earth is very old emerged just when the short, high-speed time of the Industrial Revolution was ramping up. These things were developing in parallel, and it was the iPhone that won over the geologist's hammer. Yeah. It was short-termism, the instant of distraction, which has become much more powerful than our potential knowledge of the eons which encompass our planetary life. Splitting the calendar year into work weeks and the working day into hours and the punch clock, all of those very, you know, mean slicing up of time and time horizons, as you said, happened in this culture just at the same time as an understanding of deep time was emerging. I think for me, a lot of what I was reading was, oh, this is awful. We've done terrible things. It might be too late to turn it around. It wasn't until I read your notion that we are effectively going to be colonizing the future that I felt very personally motivated and affronted because I can look back and feel miserable that my ancestors were colonizers and that they had disregard for the countries and peoples of those countries. They just saw these countries as places to enrich themselves and exert their power and have a better now at the expense of somebody else's future. That seems abhorrent to a lot of people now, I think. Or people will say, well, they didn't know. They were Some people knew <laughs> and they could have been better ancestors. They could have spoken up. But we know now, collectively, that's not a way to be. So if we're not into being colonizers anymore, how could we look at the future if we imagine the future as a country and the people who live in that country as people who are not like us? We can't interact with them, but they're still people. They have lives and hopes and dreams and children. And yet we're happy with polluting their country, with dumping our toxic waste on them, with shortening their lifespans, with raising their temperatures. You couldn't do that now. You couldn't come across an extra landmass on the earth now and start doing that, I hope, without terrible outrage. And yet that's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? Put it incredibly beautifully. In fact, I almost want to copy the way you put it for some of my talks. I mean, I've captured it beautifully. That whole idea of using a colonial metaphor to try and understand our relationship with the future, I partly drew on that idea because I grew up in Australia, you know, struggling with the history of colonialism, the whole idea of terra nullius, and that this land was captured and treated as if there was nobody there. And now we are in an age also of tempus nullius, mm. where the future is seen as nobody's time. And we have a similarly colonial attitude to it. And I think just as the struggle against terra nullius still goes on, there is also a struggle to be had against tempus nullius. How are we going to decolonize the future? The anti-colonial movements of the 20th century, a lot of them were fought with guns. I think this one will be fought with ideas that the struggle against the colonization of the future, I think the first step really is simply to recognize that the way that we see the future, as you say, we are the future eaters, as the great Tim Flannery said. Mm. We are literally consuming their resources. Yeah. We're consuming their lives. Now, trying to communicate that to people is really difficult. 
if I'm honest, what I recognize is that different things work for different people. And that's what I've tried to do in my book when I talk about six different forms or approaches to long-term thinking. For some people, deep time, that really touches them. For other people, the idea of thinking about their personal legacies and the kind of world they want their children to live in really works. The death nudge. The yeah. death nudge, right? That's behavioral psychology there. Mm. You know, the idea that 6% of people would naturally leave money to a bequest to charity in their will, so something for future generations. And then if you just literally ask them, would you like to leave a charitable gift? It goes up from 6% to 12%. And then if you say, a lot of people are leaving charitable bequests, is there an issue you're really passionate about? There it jumps up to 17% or 18%. That's amazing. So different things connect with different people, but ultimately, at least the way I think about it, at its deepest level, it goes to an understanding of what we can learn from 3.8 billion years of R&D on planet Earth by nature herself. Mm. And I've been very inspired by the biomimicry thinker Janine Benyus, and she raised the question, well, what does success look like in nature? And she says, well, success is about keeping yourself alive and your offspring alive, but not just for this generation or the next, but for 10,000 generations. The, the conundrum is that you're not going to be around 10,000 generations from now to care for your offspring. So how have bears and beavers and birds learned to survive for the long term? Well, what she says is they've learned to take care of the place that will take care of their offspring. Mm. In other words, they don't foul the nest. Yes. Life creates conditions conducive to life. These are all her phrases, not mine. She's poetic, beautiful, how she speaks. And I think if you recognize that, that to me is the ultimate long-term lesson. If we're going to survive for the long-term, no matter the uncertainties of the future, you know, people say, oh, we have no idea what the future is going to be like, what's going to happen to AI, what's going to happen to this, what's going to happen to that. Well, we do know something, that living creatures, humans, animals, other living creatures, will need air to breathe and food to eat, They'll need an ecosystem in which to embed themselves and survive. And we know that, depending on how you measure it, the global footprint network, you know, since we're using 1.6 planet Earths every year, we're using more resources that we can naturally regenerate and we create more waste that can be naturally absorbed in carbon sinks and so on. You know, that's the basis of ecological economics, which I was never taught when I studied economics in the late 80s, mm. early 90s. Now, finally, I've learned about it. And it is about staying within planetary boundaries, which is what my partner Kate's work is based upon. I've learned a lot of this from her systems thinking, that if we are going to survive for the long term, that's the kind of thinking we need. It has to be in education systems. It needs to be infused through businesses. It's got to be in our community centers. Religions need to be spreading this idea. It's how life works. You don't foul the nest. Yeah, and it's amazing what we've been trained to put up with as acceptable in terms of progress and the idea that technology will also save us all somehow, you know, that we'll find a way to get better sources of fuel that are greener, we'll find less polluting options. We're not getting back the Yangtze River dolphin. There are extinctions of large creatures happening in the last decade. They blink out. And we just seem to sort of move along. You know, it's like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't that great anyway. I never saw a Yangtze River dolphin. Things that people can't see and vanish, they surely still wound us. How long can we keep going with this idea that things on the edges where we just can't see are being ruined? And then, of course, I'm saying this from a country that isn't overcrowded and isn't polluted to within an inch of itself. There are places where all of these problems are incredibly apparent. 
I'm wondering what you think it takes for significant long-term thinking and good ancestor thinking to take place in terms of our leadership, because there are terrible ones, including Hitler's idea of the thousand-year Reich, and no one can accuse him of not being ambitious and wanting to be a good ancestor, but he only wanted to be a good ancestor for a handful of white Germans. That's a problem. There are lots of ways that I can confuse myself about what really is the right thing to do. A few hundred years ago, when colonial explorers were setting off, were they thinking they were being good ancestors by enriching their own nations? Were they thinking, well, this is something Spain will talk about forever. You know, I'm doing a great job. How do we know when we're being good ancestors or when we're being self-serving in some way? Is that something you've given any thought to? I have, but it's an incredibly brilliant and difficult question. I think it's really important to problematize (laughs) concepts. I love the idea of the good ancestor too. That's why I wrote a book about it. But I recognize that there have been bad ancestors in the past, but also not all forms of long-term thinking, which is really one of the key ideas behind being a good ancestor. So there's a real question there of who are you being an ancestor for? All of those examples are very narrow examples, as you said. You know, with Hitler, it's for white Germans or the Spanish conquistadors. They're going to create a great nation for other Spanish conquistadors, uh, people from the Iberian Peninsula. And that's a very live issue now, even amongst those countries and places which believe they're being good ancestors. Mm. So, you know, people say, oh, look at Norway. Isn't Norway wonderful? Norway, they do things like they've funded the Svalbard Seed Vault, which is this seed vault containing the world's plant biodiversity. It's a rock bunker that's been designed to last for a thousand years. It's got over a million seeds from 6,000 species. Isn't that amazing long-term thinking? Or look at their incredible investment in renewables that they're doing in Norway. And they've got a sovereign wealth fund. They've got all this money that they're putting aside for future generations, investment in healthcare and so on, and education. But the Norwegians are drug dealers. What they deal is oil and gas, Mm. one of the world's biggest oil and gas producers. Britain gets a third of its gas from Norway. So they're caring about the future generations within their borders, not outside their borders. Their sense of intergenerational solidarity is limited by the boundaries of the nation state. Actually, not even that, because, of course, the carbon emissions they're enabling the world to create Mm. are going to hit their own populations. They're going to use their own sovereign wealth fund to deal with the problems that they're creating. So there's a need to sort of universalize the idea of the good ancestor to make sure that we're thinking of it in as broad a way as possible. Yeah. But I think the complexity here in a way is that what motivates people is caring about their children or grandchildren or caring about their community. What's going to happen to my church? Because I can see that my church is going to last for another thousand years or I'd like it to. So I'm going to build a cathedral or my culture, my rugby team, whatever it is. And I think those are important things to draw on. We do need to motivate people to care about being a good ancestor, not just for their families, but their communities. But let's widen it out to something larger. And then the question, well, how do you do that? How do you really develop an expansive sense of good ancestry? I think there's ways of bridging from the personal to the universal. Certainly when I think about my own children, so I've got a boy and a girl who are 11. So if I think of my daughter, I picture her when she's 30 years old. I close my eyes and try and picture her when she's 90 years old. I look at her face. I imagine her at her 90th birthday party as a thought experiment. And I look around at her family and friends. I walk over to the window and I look at what's happening in the world outside the room. And then I imagine that someone comes over to her and puts a tiny baby in her arms and it's her first grandchild. 
And I imagine her looking down at that grandchild and thinking, well, what would this baby need to survive and thrive into the years and decades ahead? And when I do that kind of thought experiment, what I see is that my daughter or her great-grandchild are not alone. They are in a web of relationships with people, with community, but they're also in the web of the living world. They need air to breathe and food to eat. Mm-hmm. They need a living world in which to live out their lives. And so for me, that kind of thought experiment is a bridge from the personal to the transcendental. So it's a personal legacy to transcendent legacy. I think that's the kind of thing we need to inculcate. I mean, ultimately, it's not rocket science here, right? It's about ideas of interdependence, which you find in many cultures, just not very much in highly individualistic Western culture. Mm. The idea that we are and we cannot exist without each other and without that world around us. We just don't feel that, do we? I don't, you know, and I, I struggle with it. In a way, we need to feel incredibly interdependent and reliant on others. And I think that's been the beauty in the tragedy of COVID-19, that here I am on my street where people don't talk to each other very much. And as soon as COVID-19 happens, we've got a street WhatsApp group delivering food to people who can't go outside and who are vulnerable. We're sharing recipes with soda bread. That's interdependence. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah. That's a lovely way to end it. And I think you're right. That's my hope for it. And when people get frustrated and it brings out the worst in them too, we're watching each other's trajectories of behaving poorly, of grieving the world, of bargaining against a disease, of having to come to the table with people. No one can escape it. I've noticed there's a real shift in my community. When you're at the supermarket with your mask on, reflexively, people have started to say, oh, stay safe, stay well, and really mean it. Because like never before, have something in common that is very democratic in the way that it can affect us. You know, that just hasn't been the case for so many other things that we face. I think it's really important you say that because the thing about the common threat we were talking about at the beginning, when you see that it does breed a kind of interdependence, reliance on each other, stay safe thing. I do think it really can galvanize and inspire people to change. I mean, not a lot of other things will. So I think there is hope, but not optimism in the sense of, you know, I don't think this is going to be easy. All our problems will necessarily be solved, but I think there is the possibility. I think what we're seeing in the world now is what transformative change looks like. I was very struck once by reading how in the Industrial Revolution, not even people like Adam Smith thought there was an Industrial Revolution going on. They didn't see it before their eyes. I think that's what's happening now. Mm. A lot of stuff around the sort of next economy, the idea, donor economics, circular economics, post-growth, degrowth. We're seeing it in politics with movements for intergenerational rights, with that Japanese future design stuff. This is what it looks like. It's fragmented. It's contingent, but we may well be in the midst of a shift as big as the shift from feudalism to industrialization. So we can't quite see it. We don't quite believe it, but it might actually be happening. Yeah, I think we've all had a very big shock and it might take some time to process that fully, but I hope we're going to emerge with an understanding that the way we were was not sustainable, just in a day-to-day sense. The work hours not matching school hours and who's caring for children while people are working, all of that very simple nuts and bolts stuff has become incredibly apparent and it might have been able to be swept under the rug for another couple of generations if we hadn't had quite the global shock that we're having. I certainly enjoy the proof of our interdependence. 
That was the brilliant Roman Krasnarik with our equally brilliant Sarah Darmody. Both of them have writings and websites and you should follow them because, well, they are awesome. Our latest issue of Dumbo Feather magazine is all about systems change and you can check that out and even become a subscriber to our publication over at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. And if you're interested in deepening your ideas around leadership and systems change, then check out the masterclasses and deep dives available over at Small Giants Academy. That's smallgiants.com.au. EcoStore is taking a sweet approach to the plastic problem. To find out more about sugar plastic, visit ecostore.com.au.